0: Welcome to Living Bread Radio Presents, a program designed to teach and evangelize about the Catholic faith through various speakers and presentations given in the local listening area. Today's show features Dr. Chris Seaman. In part of his presentation, The Beginning of the Good News, a study on the Gospel of Mark, part of the Walsh University Lifelong Learning Academy. Today's show is titled Loaves and Fishes, Part 1, recorded in April, 2013, and now, Dr. Chris Seaman.
1: Well, okay, we know that the baskets of leftovers have to symbolize something, because Jesus says they do. What might the twelve symbolize, given the way that twelve has been used so far in the story? Tribes of Israel. Probably the tribes of Israel, right? Twelve months in the year, probably not. Twelve tribes of Israel. Somehow this is, and that makes sense, because all the symbolism of the feeding story tells us this is about Israel on the Exodus. So he feeds and signifies by the leftovers that all Israel has been fed symbolically, right? Perhaps. But that creates a, a, a challenge. And what do we do with the seven baskets left over? Um, well, what are your ideas for seven? Any ideas? What could set, if 12 means Israel, what could seven mean? Sorry, What? The continents, are there seven? I didn't know there were seven continents. Not yet? Continents? Days of the week. Days of the week? Okay. Sacraments. The sacraments, which have not yet been instituted? (laughs) We're we're stretching, aren't we? We're really grasping for anything that will make sense. Seven days of creation. Seven days of creation, maybe. Um, And, you know, don't feel bad professional biblical scholars have suggested the same things with equal frustration (laughs) and they're all wrong. (laughs) Um, I'm I'm being, I'm being uh, tongue in cheek here. Uh, I think they're all wrong. I think there's another, uh, in a sense, simpler answer based on the logic of what, first of all, the seven or the 12 has to be compared with something that's comparable to it. If the seven represents Israel, a people, um, well, who's left? In the Bible, there's basically two kinds of people. There's Israel and everybody else. Everybody else. And who do we call everybody else? Gentiles. The Gentiles in Latin, the nations. Um, yeah, it's Israel and the rest. Well, how many nations are there, do you think? There must be seven. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's <laughs> funny you should say that. Now, there are many traditions about how many nations there are, but... Um, There is a very important tradition that relates to the Exodus story, and that has to do with the number of nations in the land that Israel is coming to capture, that is coming to inhabit. That's the conclusion of the Exodus journey is the conquest of the land of Canaan. How many nations are there in Canaan? There are seven nations, according to uh, some of the passages in the Torah that actually bother to number them. If you actually count them when they give you know, the Hittites, the Parasites, it's sometimes is eight or six, but seven is a number that does appear there. Um, so that's a possibility. What we need to do then is test our hypothesis and to ask what the heck would that mean? You know, what, what would that mean about having two feedings? Uh, well, let's see what happens in between. Let's now examine what happens between our bookends. And we'll go in order. We'll go in the order of the narrative. In chapter 7, you have a new scene that is set. Uh, The Pharisees and scribes materialize, and they decide to criticize Jesus for allowing his followers to eat food with hands that have not been ritually purified. Now, this is not, in fact, a law of the Torah. There is no law of the Torah that requires Israelites to ritually purify themselves before eating a normal meal. Priests in the temple are commanded to purify themselves ritually before consuming the food of the sacrifices. The Pharisees were a movement of Jews at this time. They've been around for about two centuries, perhaps, uh, and their one of their goals, as a non-priestly movement, they were generally, as far as we know, they weren't priests by genealogy. They were lay people. The Pharisees were interested in the sanctity of all Israel. They were interested in sanctifying God's people. Now, of course, that's the goal of the covenant itself, so that's not revolutionary. Uh, But they had lived through, or at least their ancestors had lived through a recent crisis in which the temple and its priesthood were non-functional for three and a half years. This is the famous persecution of the Jews by the Greek king Antiochus in the year 167 to 164 BC. And uh, this persecution, which we read about in the books of Maccabees and we is alluded to in the book of Daniel, uh, this was a catastrophic event for the Jews because they couldn't fulfill the covenant. They couldn't worship their God in the ways that were prescribed in God's law because the temple was defiled. And until Judas Maccabee uh, cleansed the temple and, and allowed the worship to resume, uh, it was revealed to the Jews that the temple was vulnerable. That if you couldn't pin all your hopes on the temple as the means of sanctification, you're inherently vulnerable. The Pharisees, this is one interpretation of how their movement came about, said, well, we need to find ways of safeguarding Israel's ability to fulfill its vocation to holiness, right? Just as we in the church are called to holiness, so is Israel. In fact, that's where we get the notion of the call to holiness is from the book of Exodus, uh, well, how do you do that? Well, what you do, what the Pharisees did is they creatively elaborated, they took many of the rituals, many of the patterns of purification in the temple uh, worship, and they extended it to the laity. So now the laity participated more actively in the sanctification of the priesthood, the sanctification of all Israel. Um, and, uh, and for that reason, they developed a number of customs modeled on the temple worship. Uh, such as cleansing one's hands ritually before a meal. What does that mean? It's not that they're worried about hygiene. There's no germ theory yet. Rather, to cleanse your hands ritually before a meal means that every meal is an act of sanctification. Right? Every aspect of life can be made holy. This is a very important feature of Judaism after the actual destruction of the temple. The Pharisees made this up beforehand, so that's one of the reasons Judaism survived the destruction of the temple, is because they already had a means of thinking about life without a temple. Anyway, that's where this custom comes from. So the Pharisees say, why don't they do that? Um, This is often referred to as the tradition of the elders. That's what it's called here. Uh, Meaning the, the, uh, the Pharisees, as the later rabbis would, they attributed these laws, even though they were innovations, they attributed them ultimately to the ancestors and perhaps even to Moses. Later on, we hear that, in fact, all the customs of the rabbis ultimately were taught by... Mo- they were given by, to Moses by God on Mount Sinai. They just weren't written down. They were orally transmitted. So, as Catholics who believe that Revelation is both oral tradition as well as written scripture, we can identify with that. That's what the tradition of the elders means. Um, anyway, Jesus, um, instead of answering their question, why don't your disciples do this? Uh, Jesus says... Um, Jesus attacks them. He impugns their character. He says they're hypocrites. He says their hearts are far from God. And his accusation specifically is you teach as doctrines the precepts of men. Uh, That is to say, they they elevate these customs, these innovations, to the level of the written Torah, the written Torah of God that was given at Mount Sinai. And he comes up with an example, he says, that that, uh, shows how, in fact, not only are you elevating these traditions to the level of, of uh, scripture, you're also, by implementing them, you are bringing uh, people into conflict with the written laws of God. And he uses the example of uh, what's called korban, which is if someone dedicates something to God, uh, money, property, whatever, um, for the use of, of God, for the, use, the upkeep of the temple, more or less, then uh, that, those resources cannot be used for any other purpose. You dedicate something to God. Um, And Jesus says, well, what happens if that person's mother and father needs financial support in their old age? By dedicating their money to God, they are not allowed to give it to their parents. So they're actually deprived. They're they're violating the commandment to honor your father and your mother. Okay, maybe. (laughs) Uh, But Jesus has a pretty harebrained sort of, you know, strained argument against this. He still hasn't answered why eating, why purifying your hands before a meal is bad or conflicts with the law of God. In fact, this whole passage is very convoluted. It wouldn't pass most um, standards of argumentation. Probably the reason for that is that the author of the gospel, or at least the author, the tradent, the, the person who pulled these traditions together, took sayings of Jesus from different occasions, and he has put them together all around the theme of food. So different sayings of Jesus from different contexts seem to have been drawn together on the theme of food. Because guess what? That's what this is all about. It's about food, just like the feeding stories. Anyway, Jesus ends up by saying, in fact, um, you don't need to ritually cleanse your hands before you eat because nothing that comes into you from outside can render you ritually unclean. It's only the things within, the vices, the passions, uh, evil actions, sin, sin, that renders a person unclean. So Jesus is sort of transforming this notion of ritual defilement into moral defilement. He's juxtaposing these two things to make his point. So far, so good. Most rabbis would agree with him. Um, But the upshot of the argument is that uh, Peter or the, the disciples ask him to explain his parable. And of course, he hasn't given a parable, right? We talked about this last time in the parables. They say, explain to us the parable. And he says, don't you understand? don't you understand what I just said? You can't be defiled ritually by not washing your hands. Um, So he explains it to them again, indicating perhaps the 12 are slipping, right? They they already didn't recognize him at first. Now they don't recognize a parable when they don't see it. And uh, we know that to those outside, things come in parables, right? So the, the, the story about the parables in chapter four, Mark causes us to worry when the disciples react this way. Anyway, Jesus uh, were then told by this saying about defilement, Mark, as a narrator, comes in and says, By saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean, ritually clean. Okay, that's a problem. <laughs> because <laughs> if Jesus declared all foods clean, Guess where the notion that all food's clean comes from? It doesn't come from the tradition of the elders. It comes from the written law of God, the eternal covenant between God and Israel, the prime directive of which is make a distinction between the pure and the impure, the holy and the common. God commands Israel to observe certain dietary restrictions. According to Mark, Jesus just nullified them. Now, Matthew didn't agree with him. He erased that line when he was recording Mark in his story. Uh, Luke didn't agree with him either. Luke projects that whole declaration of foods, uh, nullification of food laws to the time of the early church in Acts, 5, in Acts 10 with Peter. Uh, but Mark has it happen here. Um, now, why? Why have this weird argument, which seems disproportionate to the question, why aren't you following this tradition? Because you're hypocrites and it doesn't, and you, you violate the law of God. And by the way, there's, there's no unclean food. That doesn't make sense. But what will happen right after it? Let's go from part B on the outline to part C, the center of this cycle of stories that is framed by the feedings. This is a very, if we get this, then we'll get everything. And it's very, 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 very significant that the journey that Jesus is about to undertake in these stories is solo. The 12 are not there. Why do the 12 not get his questions, his quiz at the end? Because they were missing in action at this time when the point was made. So what does he do after this dispute with the Pharisees that for Mark leads to the declaration that there is no clean or unclean food? Well, Jesus goes into Gentile territory. He's been there once before, right? When he went to the Gerasene territory and exercised the legion of demons and all that. But he goes again to another Gentile region. This is the region of Tyre, that's the coastal town north and west of Israel. Goes to the region of Tyre, and he is approached by a woman who is called a Phoenician woman. That's a long name, but she is also called a Greek. But uh, either way, she's not Jewish, is she? She's a non-Jew, and she says, my daughter ha- is, a- is uh, possessed by a demon. Please exorcise the demon from her. And every time anyone has come for an exorcism, up until now, Jesus has gone ahead and done it. In fact, he went out of his way to go to the other side of the lake to exorcise demons from that entire territory. What does he say to her? He says, sorry, lady, I don't do this for dogs. Basically, he says, let the let the food be for the children. It's not right to give the children's food to the dogs. Dogs are unclean animals in, in, uh, in Jewish tradition. So he's just called her an unclean person in rather not very nice, nice terms. How does she respond? She doesn't respond by laying down. She doesn't respond by hang, hanging her head and walking away. She talks back. In fact, she argues with him. She makes an argument for why he is wrong. She says, but even the little dogs under the table eat the leftovers. There's enough to go around, Lord. You can exercise this demon for my daughter. And Jesus, because of this argument, logos in Greek, which means argument in this context, because of the argument you've given me, it's done. And then he goes; he proceeds to go on a, on a tour, a missionary tour of Gentile territory, healing, exercising, doing all the things he did back in Galilee. The 12 are not present at any of this. So what has happened here? We move from a story about clean and unclean food, th- those categories being nullified, immediately to a story about a woman who he calls unclean by implication. She's a dog. And she says, but there's still... There's still bread to go around. He objects to, uh, initially to extending his mission to unclean people and ends up giving up the objection, ceding it, going and doing what she asks. And in fact, everyone in the Gentile territory welcomes him with open arms. They speak well of him. So the leftovers... That was the point of the feeding stories, right? The leftovers, the baskets of leftovers, and in the smack center of our cycle of stories is a story whose punchline is about leftovers. And it's more than a punchline, it's an argument. It's an argument for why the kingdom of God extends to Gentiles. The 12 don't get it. They are absent from the scene. Matthew, in his retelling of this scene, inserts them into the scene, so they will get it. Matthew, by the way, has him uh, sort of changes the meaning of this event. He doesn't allow the woman to argue, and he doesn't have Jesus go on a mission of, uh, around Gentile territory. He, he excises that from Mark's story. So all of these details are very deliberate uh, in Mark. They're all communicating a message. Jesus nullifies the categories of clean and unclean, and he extends that to people. Now, why focus on that pattern? Well, there's another place in the New Testament where that pattern, that sequence of events happens. It's Acts 10. In Acts 10, Peter uh, is praying and he has a vision of food, clean and unclean animals, and a heavenly voice says, Kill and eat. He says, I won't eat unclean things. The heavenly voice says, What God has declared clean, do not call unclean. A divine voice abolishes the categories of clean and unclean food. And what is the very next thing that happens in the story? Do you remember? Who does he meet? This is about third of the way through Acts. He meets a Gentile. And Peter in the story makes the point. He says, I wouldn't have come, because it's unlawful for Jews to associate with Gentiles. That's not historically true, but he's making he's projecting this notion of, you know, the Gentiles are not part of the kingdom. And but he says, But the Holy Spirit told me that I should not call any person clean or unclean. So notice the same sequence of argumentation here. Clean, and unclean food nullified, abolition of clean and unclean people, inclusion of Gentiles. This was an argument that many writers of the early church made to explain uh, why the kingdom of God is to be extended to the nations. This is an event that happens at some point in every gospel. In Mark, it happens during Jesus's lifetime. That's why you have this peculiar set of stories. In Matthew, he projects it to a post-resurrection event, the Great Commission, go and make disciples of all nations. In Luke, he projects it even further to Peter's encounter with Cornelius. Um, Luke may be right, who knows? Uh, But this is Mark's story. Mark says that this is the meaning of the feedings. So now we come back to the question, what does the seven symbolize? Well, it would fit with that theory that the seven might mean The Gentile nations, specifically the Gentile nations who are, in a sense, involved in the issue of the land, the promised land. Jesus extends his missionary activity through all the lands traditionally uh, uh, identified as the promised land. Uh, And all the peoples, the Jews and the non-Jews in those regions are included within his ministry. That's what the 12 don't get because they weren't there. Now, there's one more bit here to think about. Um, let's, think of, let's bring this all back to the Eucharist, right? which is the, 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 the taking, the, thank, the giving thanks, the breaking, and the giving of the bread, right? which we know is going to anticipate the Passover meal, which is going to institute the Eucharist, which is what we celebrate as a, a community of faith. Here is the fundamental meaning of all that says Mark. It means a number of things. Let's, let's take a tally of, of its various meanings. It means rejecting the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Well, we had a story about Herod at the beginning of this section and a story about the Pharisees in the middle. Um, various things described in them, but it means, but, in, it, but sharing in the meal, choosing to go out into the wilderness to join God's people in a meal is an act of rejecting the current regime, Herod, and its supporters, the Pharisees, who, uh, for whatever malevolent reasons Mark imagines, they craft laws, customs, that violate God's covenant with Israel, God's commands to Israel. Strained as the argument is, that's the message Mark is, is brewing. So to celebrate a meal as the anticipation of God's kingdom is an act of rejection. To reject, to embrace the kingdom is to reject something else, to reject its alternatives. That is a good Exodus theme. What is the Exodus? It is the choice of the alternative between Pharaoh and Yahweh, right? Israel is my firstborn son, let him go, or I'll kill your firstborn son, you king, right? So it's a a contest of two kings, of two sovereignties. We've talked about that theme before. The, the feeding stories dramatize that. So that's one thing to, the meal means rejection of the current kingdom and embrace of the new one, which is not yet here because you're on the journey to it. Just like us. We're on the pilgrimage. We're the pilgrim church on the journey to the kingdom, which is not yet here. The world has not yet become the world to come. <laughs> this world has not yet become the kingdom. Right? It's in the process And joining the process means eating the meal in the wilderness, giving up the leaven. And the other major message, implication of of this Eucharistic meal, is that it embraces all. It embraces Israel and the nations. It is a universal sacrament of salvation. And so those who consume it are becoming that universal sacrament of salvation to the world. We haven't gotten to the nations yet, the, the whole theme of the nations um, is not explicitly discussed in Mark except in this mission that Jesus goes on to the surrounding territory but of course why did they accept him why did the people in the Decapolis this region surrounding Galilee why were they so positive in their reception well probably because of that Gerasene demoniac who went off and became a messenger remember back in chapter 5 he was told by Jesus go and tell To your own people, and he did, and now they all welcome Jesus. So the messenger prepares people to enter into the meal. That I would suggest are the two main ideas that are interwoven in this wonderful sequence of stories: the Syrophoenician woman's story, great story, disturbing story, but great nonetheless. Um, And uh, uh, it's the, the the way that Mark symmetrically weaves these together is beautiful when you see it. It's, it's, the structure is the theology. By looking at our bird's eye view and by studying the details of these stories, we can see what's going on that we might not see if we're looking at the individual tales. Um, but now, having fed everyone who is to give up the leaven and join on the march, Jesus is going to be ready next week to begin the march, to begin the way of the Lord through the wilderness to the promised land, to the temple. So, what do we do with all this? (laughs) What do we do with this? How do we use this? How do we apply this to our own experience, to our own um, thinking about what we're doing when we're celebrating the Eucharist, when we're celebrating the meal as these people did 2,000 years ago? What are we doing? The the inclusion of the Gentiles, I mean, that's sort of a dead issue now, (laughs) perhaps. Perhaps. That took place in the first century and it was sort of settled by then. But again, the rejection of the current world order, you know, what, what aspects of the current, what, what, what leaven do we see around us today when we go and celebrate the Eucharist, we're preparing not only to identify, commit ourselves to the kingdom, we're also preparing to go forth back into the current order and transform it. So it teaches the church. We're not, Mark doesn't have quite that elaborate of a, of a plan. He doesn't think that the current world order can be reformed at all. Uh, but, uh, but that is what we celebrate when we celebrate the Mass. That's what the Mass means. It's the going forth. Right? Having committed ourselves, going into the wilderness for this meal, we now go forth back into the world uh, to transform it, uh, to bring the kingdom that much closer through the Holy Spirit. Any, uh, any questions or comments? Yes. If I ate with you, I shared your ideas. More than that, I would share your identity. Uh, You eat with your kindred, with your kinsfolk, with your relatives. Uh, And so by having a common meal between Jews and Gentiles, it's implying a new, more comprehensive identity that we're sharing with one another. Um, But back to your first question about why is food so prominent. Well, again, because food is a marker of identity. Who we eat with, what we eat. All these things are markers of how we think of ourselves culturally, religiously. Um, do we eat dog? Probably not. Are there cultures in the world where dog is a normal thing to eat? Sure, it's an identity marker. Not eating dog is identity marker for us. So just not just in the Bible, but in human culture generally, food and eating and the social context of eating is a form of communication. It's, just, it's not just for sustaining the, the, the body, it's a form of communication.
0: For more information about the Walsh University Lifelong Learning Academy, log on to walsh.edu. We hope that you've enjoyed this production of Living Bread Radio Presents. For an audio archive of this program, go to livingbreadradio.com and click on the programming menu. This has been a production of Living Bread Radio in Canton, Ohio. Join us again next week at the same time for more Living Bread Radio Presents.